Jesus. Amen. So I'm just going to pick up where I left off at the beginning of the baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of adoption and belonging. It is a ritual which publicly marks our status and our identity as sons and daughters of God. It identifies us as those who belong within the household of God as children of God. So when you grow up in a natural family, the mere fact of being born is what marks your status as belonging to the family. The simple fact of you coming out of your mother's womb. But the spiritual life, as I said earlier, is very unlike the uh, experience of the natural family. There are, nobody is naturally born into the family of God. We are all leave our mother's wombs moving away from the Father. We all are born into the world with an impaired and broken relationship with God. That's the meaning of original sin. And so what that means is that in order to establish a loving relationship with God as our Father, there needs to be a gracious intervention. And that intervention begins with baptism. In baptism, we go from the status of not belonging to belonging, of not being children of God to being children of God. And with that identity of being a child comes a great spiritual inheritance of belonging to God's household. Now, there are two uh, dimensions of the experience of baptism that I think can help us uh, understand more deeply what baptism is about, but what really the Christian life is about. And the first aspect of adoption has to do with our legal status as adopted, and the second has to do with our lived experience of being adopted. All adoptions even in ancient culture, which is reflected here in this text, are defined by the fact that there is a change that happens to us legally. There's a legal change in our status. And in most cases, you know, once we're not part of a family, now we're part of the family, right? And in many cases when this happens, especially when you're a child, uh, but even when you get married, you change your name. You take the name of the family. But not only do you take the name, but you now have all kinds of rights and um, privileges, things like inheritance and access to the wealth of the house, the estate. All of these become rights by, that are protected by law, right? So when this happens, once the, the adoption goes through, it is full and instantaneous. There's no probation period. There's no trial run to see if it works. Once it goes through, it's done. It's done. So that's the first side of, of adoption, right? Is the legal side. The second side is what you might call is the lived side, the lived experience side. It is the experience of actually belonging to the family, to the household. Because again, it's one thing to have a status of the family member and all the rights, but it's another thing altogether to have an experience of actually belonging within the family, a tangible sense that you are a son or a daughter of this family. 
And I, these are distinct things, but, but the second depends on the first, right? This second piece of lived experience is not instantaneous. It is a process that often takes time, and especially if, it's, if you're adopted later in life, it's even more challenging. And what inevitably happens, though, in the experience of adoption, and this is the thing that helps us understand, I think, what Paul is getting at in this text, and this is at the heart of the Christian life, is that there is this gap. There's a gap between these, a disconnect, if you will, between these two realities, these two things that belong together, between my legal status as a son or daughter and my actual experience of sonship or daughtership. See, it's one thing to have the legal status of being a son or daughter in a family. It's another thing to have the heart of a son or the heart of a daughter. And though we may legally belong, sometimes it's very dis- difficult to actually experience belonging. This is the gap, right? <laughs> this is the gap that many people who, who have been adopted experience in their life, but this is the gap of the Christian life. And this is the struggle where the Christian life plays out, right here, between our identity as, as justified sinners, loved and forgiven by the Father, with all the rights and inheritance of the household, and those who are trying to live into that reality. Now, what sets baptism apart as a, as a sacrament from, um, from every adoption ritual that you might think of is that baptism not only uh, confers and affects the legal status of our adoption into God's family, but it also provides for the lived experience of it. And that's through the person of the Holy Spirit. That is the reality of the Holy Spirit. And I want to draw your attention back, if you remember the story of Jesus' own baptism, which is a model for ours. Jesus emerges from the waters of the Jordan River, the water dripping off his body, and it says that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and touched down upon his body. And the Father from heaven spoke and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And see, what you see right there in that, that, that baptism experience is both sides of adoption. It's the experiential side of the very presence of the Father in the person of the Spirit, but also the legal declaration from the Father, from heaven, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, in our verse here, Paul is addressing this gap in our experience as adopted children between the the legal reality, if you will, and the experiential reality. And what he does here is he introduces us to uh, an aspect of the ministry of the Spirit that helps bridge the gap, right? Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. Today my goal is simply to help you understand the ministry of adoption of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit's ministry of adoption. Um, Other terms for this is the ministry of assurance, or the ministry of inner witness. And as a ministry, what distinguishes it from other parts of the Spirit's ministry is that it's, it's experiential in its character. 
It aims more directly at, at the heart rather than the head. The Spirit has a, a ministry of illumination to the head as well. It's called the illumination. But here we're talking about the ministry of assurance, the ministry of adoption. And its whole goal is this. It is to assure us in our very hearts from the inside that we indeed are children of God, that we belong, that we are sons and we're daughters. We're loved and favored and pleasing in the Father's sight. So, I want to draw your attention back to the broader context of chapter 8 of Romans, because the beginning of chapter 8, and it's really coming out of chapter 7, that Paul is talking about what does it mean to change? What does it mean to overcome the old self, the, 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 the flesh of Adam, and to be a different person? And I think the reason that the ministry of this aspect of the ministry of assurance is so critical to get and here's, here's really the big idea I want to get with you this today, is that all deep and lasting change in the, in the life of the Christian is connected to this ministry of assurance. All of our failure at growth in the Christian life, all of our failure to change at, at its root is a problem of identity. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand who we are. For Paul, the ministry of, sancti- um, of assurance is vitally connected to the Spirit's ministry of sanctification. And that's what he's been talking about up until this point in chapter, in chapter 8. And we see the transition here. And it's easy to, to go from what he says about putting to death the misdeeds of the body to, to assurance and not really see the connection. But I want you to see here that there's a connection. We often miss this connection because of how we've come to think about change in our culture. Most of us think about change as simply a matter of behavior modification, right? Here's the behavior I want to change. I'm going to focus on it. And with enough grit, with enough determination, with enough willpower, with with some new habits perhaps, I can take care and I can change as a person. But deep and lasting change, brothers and sisters, only flows from a new sense of a new identity. Deep and lasting change flows from a new identity. And we can't experience change without change in who we are. Again, this, look at what Paul says. I want to help you see the logic of what he's doing here. He says, so then we are, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. Now, what are the reasons that Paul gives here for not living according to the flesh? There are a couple. I mean, the first one, and this is part of the logic of the last, you know, um, 11 verses, is that the flesh leads to death. That's the logic of the flesh. It leads to death. It's a violation of God's law. But, But Paul begins to shift his reasoning here, and he gives us another reason why we should not live according to the flesh. And it's very simple. It's not who you are. That's not who you are. You have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, that means you're a son or a daughter. Why would you live according to the flesh? Anybody who has been given the Holy Spirit has become a son or daughter of God. And so what Paul is basically saying here is like, listen, this is not who you are. This is not your identity. You are adopted children. 
And the fact that you have the Spirit is the sign of that. Think with me for a minute about identity markers for what it means to belong. Every group, every community, every nation, any group has identity markers by which you know what it is or what that group is and who belongs and who doesn't belong. So for instance, to become part of a family, if you're adopted, the big identity marker is simply a name change. Now if you're a medical doctor, right? What happens when you become a medical doctor? Aside the fact that you put on scrubs or something like that, that's also part of identity. You have this new title, doctor, that people call you doctor. And that, that's sort of a sign like that. And it, and it comes with honor and respect. And you know, it, it, there's a whole lot of meaning that goes with that, right? Or if you're in the military, what are those, those marks, those identity markers, right? Often a uniform, a title with a, with a certain rank, Sometimes a haircut. Uh, sometimes, uh, in, in certain military contexts, there's a tattoo, especially if you're with and did a tour with a group of, 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 of folks. There's all kinds of different identity markers that we have. And, and, the, and the role that identity markers have for understanding belonging is this, is that on the one, one thing they do is they let other people know that we belong. But actually more important than letting other people know that we belong to this particular group is they, they, they help us to know that we belong. Because identity markers are actually more for us than they are for others. See, if you, if, you wanna, if, you, if you wanna live into the reality of belonging to a new group, but you refuse to take on any of the identity markers, that's a contradiction. You'll never be able to grow into that identity. Now, what sets Christians apart especially from Jews in the very beginning, is that there were no external cultural identity markers. That you, you couldn't look at a Christian just and, and say, well, that's a Christian, or know something about them culturally. No, that's a Christian. For the Jews, they had a very clear identity marker. I mean, it wasn't visible, thankfully, but circumcision, right? It was circumcision. That was one of the things that marked you as a Jew or not, as a male Jew, at least. But for the Christian, there's no visible identity marker. But there is an identity marker, and the identity marker is the Holy Spirit. The identity marker is the Holy Spirit. And this is fascinating to think about. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is invisible. Nobody sees it. We don't see the Holy Spirit. But that's how Paul talks about the gift of the Spirit, and this plays out in the book of Acts as well. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 4. Um, this, is a, this is a very parallel, very similar text to the one that we're with right now. Paul is reflecting on, on adoption. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit into, <clears throat> God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul is really clear here. What marks our identity? The identity marker of the Christian is the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
God gives us his Holy Spirit, and we cry out from within that we are his children. And the Spirit is a living identity marker that dwells within us and confirms who we are as part of God's family. Uh, Paul, so let me help you just drill down a little bit more, give you a, another image that Paul uses to talk about this aspect of the Spirit. Um, in Ephesians, he uses uh, the language of that the Spirit is like a seal. And seal here is, is sort of like an official stamp, um, governmental stamp that you would put on a document, right, that would mark it as authentic communication or, or, or whatever it might be. And this is how Paul uses this language. He says in, in Ephesians 1, he says, In Christ you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Let me break this down real quickly for you. So you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, we have this idea of an identity marker. But, but the seal is not a thing. It's not an object. It's not a mark upon our body. It is the very presence of the Holy Spirit imprinted upon our hearts until we might gain full possession of it. The Holy Spirit is God's official stamp of approval upon our hearts. It is, a, in a sense, a down payment of the very reality that someday will be full and complete, where there will be no gap between the legal reality and the lived reality. And again, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that it's the spirit, it's, it's not a, a, the identity marker for the Christian is not a mark on our body. It's not a cultural thing, an external thing, or even a name change. It, it is the very person and presence of God marked upon our hearts. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit is the identity marker in us that says to us, you are beloved, you belong, you are forgiven, there is grace, there is mercy always for you as a child in the household. And so the Spirit, what the Spirit does experientially is flood our hearts with this reality that we might experience adoption. And, 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 you know, it's a whole other sermon to talk about how you access this or where the Spirit comes, but, but it is especially in the wilderness times that the Spirit is at work. In those times when the gap seems so big, it seems like this chasm in our experience, that the Spirit comes in and says, no, 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 you are a son, you are a daughter, God loves you. Now, I want to return to this question of change and transformation and help you see how this truth is really at the root, the power of change in the Christian life. Sin in the Christian life is a failure to grasp our new identity as adopted sons and daughters. Sin is a failure to grasp our identity as sons and daughters of the Father. Remember what I said a couple weeks back about this category of the flesh. The flesh is our false self. The flesh is this organized thing in us. It's our false self. And the false self um, is a shadow that dogs us all. It's that part of us 
that wants to exist outside of the reach of God's will and God's love and of God's reality. That's the false self. It's, that's our flesh. The false self is always seeking to build its identity as independent from God as our Father. And sometimes, you know, there's all kinds of identities that the false self wants us to build upon, and they can be very good things. They can be like a career, becoming a doctor, having a family, getting married, being a great parent, a particular hobby, or perhaps a just cause. There's all kinds of things that we, good things that we can build our identities on, but none of them is enough. None of them ultimately will break the power of the false self in our life. Friends, the power of sin in our life is rooted in the identity of the false self. That's where the power of sin resides in your life. Is it's, in the, it's in the identity of the false self. And this false self has a long and deep history with all of us, even if you were born into the church. The false self is always clouding our motives in life such that we can't see them very clearly. But friends, I, I, let me just... All, all action, all behavior in our life flows from motive, motivations. And all motivation flows from identity. You know, if I had a chart here, you know, you have arrows. At the very bottom, the deepest root, is identity. And then the arrow goes up, and then there's motivation. And then the arrow goes up for motivation, and there's action. Right? And the reality is, is that we're never able to fully discern our true, our deepest motivations in life because the shadow self, the false self, is always there, clouding things. But when, you, the, when we come and we begin to think about change in our life, and I want to go back to this idea of behavioral change, where we, we're trying to, you know, we zero in on something we're doing that we want to change, and we're just sort of, we kind of hammer it through willpower and, and discipline and accountability. And that, you know, that, that is part of change. I don't want to say that that's not. But that's just, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You know this game, whack-a-mole? You like, you hit the mole, and then it pops up over there. Or some of you have yards with moles in them, right? You hit it, and I mean... You don't, you don't take care of the mole by hitting it on the top, but he's just going to pop up somewhere else in the yard. You've got to go underground if you're going to get the mole. You've got to go underground. And the going underground part is getting at these deeper questions of motive and identity. The reality of the false self is, is he's underground. He's often at work, and we don't even see it. And to break the pattern of sin in our lives requires that we break the identity of the false self. To break the pattern of sin in our life means we have to break the identity of the false self. And the only way you can break that identity, you can't take a hammer to it. You can't, I mean, we try to do this. You can't, you can't take a hammer to it. The only way you break that identity is through a new and better identity. The identity of being beloved Sons and daughters. That's the only way that you break the, the, that identity of the false self. Paul tells us that we have two options when it comes to identity formation. They're right here in verse 15. You have two options. You can be a slave or you can be a son. You can be a slave or you can be a daughter. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. Friends, the problem with our false self is that because it bases its identity, its meaning, its significance on creaturely things instead of on God, it always has to contend with the reality of fear. 
Fear is always there. And what is the fear? The fear is shame. It's shame. Arguably, the greatest motivator in all of our lives for all of our false selves, and we all have them, I just want to keep reminding you of that, is shame. Shame avoidance. Shame is always lurking in the background, in the parking lot, as one writer put it, waiting for you to come out and to pounce on you. The, the work of uh, Brene Brown, um, she does a lot of study and research. She's a popular writer and speaker, has really helped me understand the dynamics of shame. And I think it really helps pull together a lot of what, what Paul is getting at in the deep, deep part of this. And what she says about shame is, is, is very, very helpful. I want to read to you. And she says that shame is fear of disconnection. Shame is fear of disconnection. We are psychologically, emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually hardwired for connection, love, and belonging. Connection, along with love and belonging, is why we are here. And it is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. And shame is a fear of disconnection. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished, makes us unworthy of connection. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Friends, in a million different ways, which we are almost always unaware of, our day-to-day lives are devoted to escaping from the shadows of shame. Fear of disconnection haunts all of us no matter how accomplished or successful we might be in life. Now, so many of us are stuck in patterns of sin that we cannot seem to overcome because of our shame. Our efforts at personal change seem futile and frustrated. And the reason for this, friends, is because we have been taken captive by a shame-based identity. The false self is a shame-based identity. It is an identity whose chief motive in life at any cost is to avoid shame. We are so deeply afraid to face the false self, to face the truth about ourselves because of the fear that we might just completely lose our entire self. We are afraid of disconnection. We are afraid of rejection. We are afraid of embarrassment. We are afraid of being seen as unworthy. And what this does is this locks us up in that fear-based, shame-based identity as the same old person And the false self will only let us go out so far. You can change some superficial stuff on the surface, but you cannot deeply change. How do we overcome this shame? The only way that you can break the shame-based identity of the false self is through a new and better identity, that of being a beloved son or daughter of the Father. Remember what Brene Brown said about being hardwired for connection. 
it's true. This is a true theological statement. We are hardwired for connection, not just with one another, but most importantly with God. We're hardwired for connection with, with God. And so when, we, when you are in Jesus Christ, what you've been given is a new connected identity, <laughs> a reconnected identity of the Father, connected to the love of the Father through the Spirit. This identity has to displace and overcome the old identity. It's the only way. But this identity is received, it's not achieved. It comes as a gift from God, formed in us by the dwelling Holy Spirit. It's not our accomplishment. It's not something that we make for ourselves. It's not something that you can talk yourself into. Brene Brown tells us that the way to overcome shame in our life is to learn to see yourself as worthy of being loved. And this is true, but it's only a half-truth. By itself, self-love is wholly inadequate to address the real depths of our shame. You will only successfully come to see yourself as a worthy of love and belonging in Jesus Christ. There's a good reason, friends, that we struggle with shame. We are sinners. <laughs> and there is much about us that is unlovable. There is a lot about us that is wrong and broken. There's a lot of bad things we do. There's a lot of bad things we say. There's a lot of people we hurt, even ourselves. We earned those garments of shame. We earned them. They weren't just imposed upon us by a disapproving culture or parents. We earned them. And what we need is new garments. <laughs> we need new garments. We need righteous garments, clean garments. But you can look everywhere in your closet, you are not going to find those garments. You only get them from Jesus' wardrobe. That's why Paul tells us again and again, he says this later in Romans 10, 12, he says, put on Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ. Clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us the garments we need, and the Spirit helps us fit them and wear them. For it is only in Jesus Christ that you come to know yourself as lovable and worthy. And the reason why you can do this is because Jesus is lovable and worthy, and you are united with him, which means you are lovable and worthy. Friends, deep transformation only comes when you come to realize in your heart of hearts that you are completely loved and accepted by the Father without reservation. Deep transformation only comes when you come to realize in your heart of hearts, in your spirit, that the, the deepest, most intimate part of yourself that you are loved and accepted by God the Father without exception. Again, change does not come through fear and shame. You don't change as a person by other people's imposing shame upon you. You don't change by imposing shame upon yourself and beating yourself up. You don't change even by learning to love yourself and see yourself as worthy of love. You change through the experience of God loving you from the inside out through the presence of the Holy Spirit who cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. 
You change through the Spirit's deepening confirmation with your spirit that you belong, that your identity is as beloved, adopted child. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Dear brother, dear sister, remember who you are. When you're struggling with sin and shame, remember who you are. When you're struggling with doubt and despair, remember who you are. When you're struggling with trials and temptations or tribulation of every kind, remember who you are. You are adopted. You are beloved of the Father. And the Father says to you, just as he says to Jesus, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's the final word. Case closed. Amen. Father, help us to know that we belong. Help us to know that you paid through the death of your son the infinite cost that we could never pay to belong. That you overcame all those things that stood in the way of us being able to connect with you and also with one another. Lord, may we live beyond shame and may we be free from the besetting sins and struggles that we often um, get weighed down upon, weighed down upon us. And may we know ourselves as glorious children of the Father. So we give you thanks, Lord, for your word and we give you thanks for the Spirit. And I pray, especially this morning, that the Spirit of assurance would be speaking loudly in the hearts of your people, telling them to their hearts they are children of you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.